If you have a Bible, Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. We are spending three months in the book of Jeremiah this summer. Uh, all, all about Jeremiah. We're going to throw in Lamentations probably somewhere close to the end of August. So obviously with the size of the book of Jeremiah, that means this is not going to be a full-blown verse-by-verse of every single thing. But we're trying to look at it. We're trying, we do acknowledge all of the complications, difficulties, and the convoluted mess the book of Jeremiah is. Uh, we know the book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order, which makes outlining it almost impossible. We do know all the controversy between there are two different Jeremiahs, if you don't realize this. There's the Masoretic text. There's the Septuagint. The two do not agree. One is longer than the other. And in some key verses, the Septuagint translation is completely different than the Masoretic translation. Most of your Bibles use the, your Bibles use the Masoretic text. So that's what we're using. Uh, we're, we've addressed that at least briefly on the podcast. We're not going to be able to, I mean, if we try to resolve that problem, it would take us out probably about six months just trying to work on it. Um, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. We do know that there's a lot of things in Jeremiah that just raises all kinds of questions. Again, the chronological order. The order is different in the Septuagint than, or, and, than it is in the Masoretic text. There's just a host of issues. And... We obviously, I am not ignoring that, not denying that, but trying to figure out how how much of that to go into, we will see. I'll probably use the podcast to address some of it a little bit more. Maybe we will use uh, an hour at some point before the summer is over to address some of these issues. But the goal for this three months is to study the book of Jeremiah, not just so that when we're done, we say we understand Jeremiah better than we did before we started, but to hopefully benefit all of us spiritually in some way, shape, or form. And I'm also trying my best to redo the way I approach the preaching because we, we constantly, I mean, the church has changed dramatically. There was, there was a time that the exact same people who were in Sunday school were there for Sunday morning, was there for Sunday night for Wednesday. It was the same all across the board, right? So you just, you, you could just start preaching through a book and stop, you know, verse two and just at the very next hour pick up in verse three because everybody had heard verse one in too, right? But that's, it's different now. It's different now. And, that, and that's just the reality. So what I'm trying to do is for each message, make it a standalone where it has no connection to what came before. Now, even this, I'm having to do a little bit of review, but just I want to make sure we're all on the same page here, which though can be, it, it's very difficult to do, right? Because when you're studying a chapter, if I, like, if I start where we stopped in the last hour, nobody's going to know what's going on, right? Nobody's going to have a clue. You're going to be like, wait, why is he asking this question? I don't understand. I could just do that, but it would be really weird. So I'm going to have to at least try to th- draw some correlation, but I'm not going to do the review that I typically would do. Does that make sense? I, the, in my mind, the way I would like it is just to be completely standalone, but it just doesn't work when you're in the middle of a chapter. Does that make sense? So if, like if we finish chapter 2, and then the next hour we went to chapter 3, I wouldn't even mention the existence of chapter 2. Now that goes against everything in my nature, because my nature would be like, you need to know everything that happened in chapter 2. But, you know, that, there's, that, that's just, I'm trying to figure that out. So I mentioned this in the last hour. As I'm still trying to figure this out, just be patient on how, that, how it looks and how it works, but I'm doing my very best. So Jeremiah chapter 2. We will not do a, a quick review, but i got to at least let you know where we are. All right? Jeremiah chapter 2, we start in verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, and a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the firstfruits of his increase, all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. All right? Now, in those three verses, God gives a message to Jeremiah to deliver to Jerusalem, which is the capital of the southern kingdom, and his message is very simple. He wants them to know what he remembers. And this is God speaking in very human terms, right? He doesn't ever remember anything because he always knows it, but he's using very human language to say, hey guys, I remember our relationship. 
I remember what it was like. And he, and he reminds them of a couple of things. Just briefly, you'll see it in verse 2. Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee the kindness. He remembers their kindness. Their kindness to him. Their, their, their uh, devotion to him. Their, their, they, they cared about God. They, they thought about God. They didn't just think about themselves. I remember when you were nice to me. All right. Next, he remembers their love when he says the love of their espousals. Mem- remembering, hey, not only do I remember when you were young, because he says the kindness of your youth, I remember when you were young, how you were nice to me. Then I remember your love for me as a bride. You love me like a bride would love the bridegroom. Then the next thing he says is um, th- when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. I remember your kindness, your love. I remember that you followed after me as a bride will follow after her groom. I remember how you loved me like a bride and followed after me. The next thing he says he remembers there. You'll see in verse 3, Israel was holiness unto the Lord. I remember there was a time that basically you cared and pursued and, and, and you were trying to obey me. I remember that. All right, the next thing he says is, I remember that you were the first fruits of his increase. Hey, being the first fruits, I remember that you were dedicated to me and I thought that more would come from you. Now, of course, he's speaking in human terms because he always knew what was going to happen. But he's like, I remember this. And then what else does he say? All that devour him shall offend, evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. In other words, I remember how I protected you. Those who blessed you were blessed, and those who were cursed, those who cursed you were cursed. I remember all of this. Now, obviously, God wants them to know that he remembers this because he's doing what? He's trying to remind them of that was what your relationship used to be like. Your relationship used to be. Now, now he wants them to consider, think about what our relationship was, and what is our relationship like today? He wants them to stop and consider what their relationship with him is like today. And then notice what happens, and this is where we'll we'll pick everything up, is in verse 4, we have the question. In fact, I... Um, you could, you, we can break it down this way. The first thing we see is God's word mentioned in verse 1. The second thing we see are the recipients also mentioned uh, and mentioned in verse 2. Uh, we have what God remembers in verses 2 through 3. And then verse 4, um, possibly 4 through 5, we have the question. God is going to ask a question. He wants them to remember what their relationship used to be like. He used to be nice to me. You used to love me. You used to follow me. You used to be, oh, you were my first fruits. I used to protect you. But what does he say in verse 4? Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Now, verse 4 is a little different because now the recipients are different. Earlier, the recipients was whom? Look at verse 2. Who were the recipients in verse 2? Jerusalem, meaning that's the capital city of the southern kingdom, right? Now, who are the recipients? The house of Jacob, all the families of the house of Israel, meaning the north and the south, right? All of Israel. I want all of you to hear this. All of you, right? Okay, hey, he specifically was speaking to Jerusalem in the previous section, but now the word, he wants to speak to all of them in a general way. And he's going to ask a question, and what is the question? Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me? What is his question? What is the question? What, what, what did you find wrong with me? Because he just reminded them of their relationship, right? How it had been. You were nice to me. You loved me. You followed me. You're a holiness, right? You were protected. Now, in fact, I'll read it from this translation. He says, what fault did your fathers find in me? 
What iniquity? What sin? What did I do wrong? In other words, it's, it's that kind of thing. Again, this is all being spoken of in human terms. You can be in a relationship and you know something has changed and you're, you may say something like, what did I do wrong? God is asking them, what did I do wrong? What, what iniquity did you find in me? Now, there's much debate on what is happening with these questions, all right? So, or this question, I should say, question singular. Um, we've got to understand, how is he asking this question? And there's not agreement. There are three views on what he's trying to do with this question, all right? I, I almost want to, I, I would like to kind of poll everyone to see how everyone would, would answer it, but or, I'm not. There are three ways to understand this question. Here we go. Number one. The first way, the first way to understand this question is this is a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question. And if it's a rhetorical question, what is a rhetorical question? You ask it already knowing the answer. So, God is asking a rhetorical uh, question where the answer should be obvious. What should the answer be? You could... Look, what fault did you find in me? Because obviously, there is no fault in me. He's asking it in a rhetorical manner, right? That's the rhetorical camp, right? We'll call it the rhetorical camp. How many believe this is a rhetorical question? Hey, what fault did you find in me? Don't bother answering because the answer is none, right? That's the rhetorical. The second, what do you think the second is? If it's rhetorical, what would be the second possible way of looking at it? Okay, it's an actual challenge by God. Hey, come on, give me all the things I've done wrong. Actually lay out your charges. Some point to Jeremiah 2, verse 29. 2:29. wherefore will you plead with me? Now, this idea of plead is, will you present your case to me? All have transgressed against me, saith the Lord. Wherefore will you plead? Where, are you going to present your case against me? The idea of plead is not like pleading like, please. It's like, present your case to me. Right? Let's hear it. So is God saying, come on. Hey, I remember. I remember how you used to be nice to me. I remember how you used to love me. Something has changed. So come on. Tell me what I did. This is your opportunity. Right? Come on. This, these kinds of questions show up in our own human relations, right? The next time your uh, husband and wife in here get into an argument, I'm just going to say, come on, tell me what I did wrong. Because I know I didn't do anything wrong, right? I'm going to ask it in a rhetorical way, right? But sometimes the wife doesn't understand it rhetorical, and she's like, oh, well, let me get my book. Here you go. Well, it started in 1972 when you were born. Okay, and you're like, okay, never mind. It was a rhetorical question. The answer is supposed to be, of course I can't find fault in you, honey. Okay, but that's not the way this works, right? So is it rhetorical or is he saying, come on, give me your list of grievances, right? Third, this is, this is uh, and this one I had not given much thought to. This is God expressing his consternation at the nation's ingratitude and unfaithfulness. He's asking the question almost in a way of just frustration. What did I do wrong? Come on. Like, it, it's, he's not, so it, it, it's almost in a rhetorical way, but it's not even in a rhetorical way. You ask the question in a frustrated way, right? Just to show you're just, so what have I done now? What have I done now? Like, you, you yeah, yeah, it's almost like, what's your problem, right? I mean, have you ever gotten frustrated with your kids and ask a question and you're not really, it's not even rhetorical, it's not even you don't want an answer, it's just you're expressing your total frustration with them. He's expressing his consternation at the nation's ingratitude and unfaithfulness. Now, clearly we know this much. We know the question clearly signifies a change to how things used to be. 
how things used to be. In the first hour, the focus was, the, in the first hour, our focus was on the phases of the Christian life. Like every Christian's life goes through these different phases. And the nation of Israel went through these phases. There was a time they were young and they like, we, we, we want to be kind to God. And then they went through kind of like a honeymoon stage, like a bride, and we love God. And then they followed after him, and then there was like a holiness there, and then there was like God protecting them. And now all of a sudden it goes from that to God saying, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And know how he asked the question? Look at verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain. Now, that is the theme for this hour. The first hour was the phases of the Christian life. The second, for the, the second hour, the phase, the, the, not the phase, the focus I want to be is on this idea of Chasing after that which is vain, that which is meaningless or empty. So let's just briefly do a quick word study here on the word vain, all right? You walked after vanity and become vain. Let's look up both words, vanity and vain. If I look at it in a different translation, it's stated this way, all right? What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me and they followed worthless idols and became worthless? All right? That's a very strong way of stating it. Let's look at the words themselves. All right? Look at verse 5. You've walked after vanity. The word vanity is this Hebrew word. Here we go. Strong's H, 1892. Hevel. 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 It means emptiness or vanity. Unsatisfactory, often used as an adverb, altogether vain vanity. Its outline of biblical usage is vapor, breath, breath, vapor, vanity. Vainly. All right. Do we get the idea? In other words, what have I done wrong to you? What, what fault did you find in me that would lead you to do what? To walk after that which is empty, meaningless, vain, useless, of no value. There's nothing there. It's a vapor. It's like trying to grab onto air, right? You can't grab onto it, right? It's like trying to grab... Uh, you know, I'm going to take the ocean home with me and you put it in your hand and it's going to do what? It's just going to pour right out of your hand. You can't really grab onto it. It's, 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 there, even though that's an actual thing, you can't grab onto it. Well, this is pursuing that which is vain. They, in other words, they used to do what? They used to be kind to God. Everybody got that? They used to be what? Kind to God. They used to love God as a bride. They used to... Follow after God. This is all right there in chapter 2. And they used to be holy unto God. They used to be his first fruits. And God used to protect them. And now he's like, so what, what did I do? And they now are doing what? Are they not being kind to God? They're not following after God. They're not holy to God. They are pursuing what? Vanity. Vain. And then note what happens. And are become vain. See that? Now let's look at that, that word. You've walked after vanity. And you've become vain. And become and are become vain. Right? Look at the Hebrew word. Strong's H, 1891. Havel. Havel. Very similar to the previous word, right? Very similar, right? Now, it's used five times. Become vain, make vain. What is the uh, Strong's definition? To be vain, right? To be led astray, to become or make vain, to act emptily, become vain, be vain, 
to become vain, to be utterly vain, to cause to become vain, to fill with vain hopes. So instead of pursuing God, what's his question? What did I do wrong that you are now what? Pursued, walked after vanity, and in so walking after it, you have become it. What you walk after is what you become. What that which you pursue, you become. Now, the question is, we have to then, from a practical standpoint, we have to figure out what vanity were they going after. Now, one translation kind of gave it away, what they were going after, right? The, the Christian Standard Bible gives us the, they, they basically offer an interpretation here, right? But what is the vain thing? Listen to how it reads again. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me and followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. So that gives you specifically what they went after. The vain thing they went after was idols because idols are vain. Why are idols vain? Because they're worthless. Now, if we take a step back, then we would have to, ver for our own Christian life, think about this, all right? Just think about your own, uh, own Christian life. We have to determine and figure that which we are pursuing, is it vain? How much of our life is dedicated to pursuing that which is empty, vain, and worthless? Now, we all know we shouldn't, but we all have a hard time. Nobody, let's be honest, nobody can agree on what it is, right? You've probably heard a million sermons where they'll be like, an older generation, for example, an older generation, right? We'll look at younger generation and like, you spend all your time on social media and TikTok. That's vanity. And they can look around and go, and you spend all your time doing crossword puzzles. I mean, I don't know if old people do crossword puzzles, but whatever old people do, right? Quilting a blanket or whatever. What, what do old people do, Eli? He doesn't know, okay? <laughs> He's like, I don't know. There's some weird animal that I have yet to figure out. Okay, but the point is, we all have a, we all have a tendency that whatever someone else is doing is what? Vain. Whatever I do, worth something. It's meaningful, right? So that makes it almost impossible, Right? Because, I mean, because I've heard plenty of sermons where this is where the pastor would be like, here are three vain things we pursue, right? But those are three vain things according to whom, whose definition is. And I guarantee there's things in his life that he's pursuing that someone could sit there and go, that's vanity, that's vain. So do, so here's a, a hermeneutical question of the day. Do we try to figure out what the vain thing is in our, for us, or do we connect the vain thing simply to idolatry? Now, if we connect it to idolatry, that still becomes a problem, right? Because now we have to determine what is an idol. Now, remember, I gave my hypothesis in, well, I see, I shouldn't say remember because it's supposed to be standalone. All right, my hypothesis is this is that I believe idolatry, I think there's been a misunderstanding of idolatry throughout church history. Because whenever we talk of idolatry, we always speak of that which is external, right? Hey, that's an idol, that's an idol, that's an idol, that's an idol. I think the external pursuit of those things is the symptom of the idolatry that is internal. The idol we pursue is what? Self. It's the... we have set up an idol inside of us. And so all those things we pursue, those are not necessarily the idols. Those are simply what the idol inside of you wants and desires. So you're doing that to feed the idol inside. The real idol is us. We're the idol. We're the thing we're going to worship. So when we, so what, so do you see how even that more complicated that becomes, Right? Because now if I say, don't pursue vain things, I think that's a great sermon, 
But who gets to determine the vain thing? Because don't we all pursue things to please as what? Us. What we want. We're, I'm going to do this. Why are you going to do it? Because that's what I want to do. That makes me happy. That's what I enjoy. That's what I like. And if anyone calls into question that, we typically get, we immediately start finding ways to justify it. Look, I've given the example a million times, but it's, it's, it's just, it just is a great example of it. My, my independent fundamental Baptist church in uh, Papillion, Nebraska, they had you know, a million rules in that church, a million rules, man. And, and as, as, as much as sometimes the teaching was good, these rules were so just insane that sometimes you could not follow them, right? So, for example, if I went home on a Saturday and listened to secular music, I was in sin, I would be kicked out of the Bible Institute, and possibly even your church membership would be called into question because you were not to listen to secular music. Wrong. Okay. But the pastor could go home and watch college football starting at 11 a.m. on Saturday morning and watch it till 11 p.m. Saturday night, and he was godly. Now, you see how utterly ridiculous that is? But his argument, well, Paul used sports illustrations. So that is your justification? Because he used an illustration? Like, I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing. If I use an illustration about pornography, that means we can all go home and watch porn? Like, I mean, that's like, just because you use something as an illustration doesn't mean he's like, go forth and watch sports. Like, but that's just how we'll, well, we'll find any way to justify it, right? We'll, we'll grab a scripture and we'll do what, we'll twist it into a million to justify what we want to do. So, because some could argue, yeah, you could argue music. I mean, there's just so many ways of doing it. But I'm just saying that we could all, every one of us, can always find a way to say that what I'm pursuing is not vain. So how do we determine if we're pursuing that? Because it, there seems to be a danger here, right? What's the danger of pursuing that which is vain? Now, everyone quote the verse again. Jeremiah 2, what verse? Everybody look at it. Find the verse. Yeah, which verse? Everybody see verse 5. I want everyone to look at it. He asked, what iniquity did you fathers find in me, right? That you did what? You walked after vanity and became vain. That's a question every person who reads Jeremiah, like, no, no, no. no. So we could say it this way. Historically, how did they become vain? Right? That's the question we need to try to figure out. How did they become vain? And then how do we become vain? Well, at least one translation says what they were going after was idols. But that still leaves us with, well, then what idols do we pursue? And an idol is ultimately anything that ultimately does what? Replaces God, or in this case, serves the, the, the ultimate idol, which is self. So we, we don't want to become vain. So how do we avoid it? Well, we've got to first figure out what... I don't know if there's an easy answer. Because I can, because I, look, you can look up sermons on, on this, on Jeremiah 2. They're all over the internet. And they're probably going to give you three or four things. Right? But I'm telling you, those things are going to be subjective. But God, right? Right, exactly. That, that's the easy answer. Anything you're pursuing... That's not worshiping God, right? It basically is, is vain. And then some will say, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, anything that you put before God is vain. Well, that, well, that, you see how subjective that becomes, right? How subjective is that? How do you determine what you put before God? So then you have to break it down to time, money. Well, I mean, give me a break. That, that's all going to fall apart in five seconds. Like, this just becomes like a, a, a look, we don't want to become vain, but we have to, we cannot, we have to acknowledge how difficult it is because we live in a world, let's be honest, where we, we want to walk after God, we want to pursue God, but there's a million other things that we like and we do and we think about every day. 
So, I'm, I, you know, either you have to sell everything and go live in a monastery, or we have to try to fit, how do we balance that out? I don't know if there's a balance, but as we go through the, uh, maybe as you read Jeremiah, maybe you'll find something. Let's just see how this plays out in the chapter itself, all right? So, there is the question, all right? There is the question in verse 4 and 5. The simple question is, what have I done wrong, Right? that you have gone and, 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 and done this. Now, look what happens in verse 6. Now, this gets interesting, okay? Verse 6, or we'll go through, actually, we're going to go through um, verse 6 through 8, really, is where this takes place. I don't know what we want to call this, first sec- this next section, but let's at least read it, all right? 6 through 8. Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadows of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man, where no man dwell. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. All right. Now, six through eight. What do we, what do we, should we do with this section? All right. So if we're doing kind of a, just a, a very simple outline, this is what we have so far. If you just want to go through chapter two, verse one, we have God's word. Chapter 2, verse 1, we are, chapter 2, verse 2, we have the recipients. Uh, Number 3, we have what God remembers in verses 2 through 3, all right? So verse 1, God's God's word, number, uh, uh, verse 2, we have the recipients, verse 2 through 3, what God remembers. Verses 4 through 5, we have the question, and then starting in verses 6 through 8, what do we call this? What do you think we should call verses 6 through 8? What do you think we should do with six through eight? Six through eight. What do you think? What do you think is happening here in verses six through eight? I think he did the reminding in in verses two through three. There is some reminding going on. I won't deny that there isn't. Now, the King James says, the, the King James at the beginning of verse 6 says what? Neither said they, where is the Lord? Another way of translating that is this. They stopped asking, where is the Lord? 6 through 8, I refer to this as the forgetting. It starts with God reminding them of what he remembers about them, Right? What does he remember about them? They were nice to him. They loved him. They followed him. There was holiness unto the Lord, right? He protected them. Do we see all of that in that section I mentioned, right? Where God remembers or God reminds them of what he remembers, yes? Right? Then all of that leads to the question. And what is the question? What did I do wrong? That you did what? Started pursuing vanity and became vain yourself. And then he says, you guys stopped asking what? Where is the Lord? Now, this forgetting happens in two groups of people. You ready? The forgetting happens in the people themselves and within the spiritual leaders. Is they, see, you see these phases that's happening in the life of Israel. That's what the first hour was all about, right? It started off with they were young, and they're like, we, we want to be nice to God. Then they grew up a little bit, and like, man, we're like a bride. We're so in love with God. And then they were following after God, and there were holiness, and there were first fruits, and then God protected them. And then all of a sudden, something changed. And God's like, what did I do? And they stopped following after God and they started following what? Idols. Or well, we'll just we'll use the language of the King James. They started following that which is vain. 
And once they started following that, we became vain. What happens when you start following after that which is vain and not following after God? You forget God. Which is what happens, yes? So then God's like, you stop doing what? What does it say in verse 6? You stopped what? Yeah, they stopped asking, where is God? They stopped doing what? They stopped worrying about God. They, start, they started forgetting God. That's exactly how. When you pursue this, you forget that, right? Just think back to your Christian life. And that, and that, and that phase, whatever you want to call that phase, you were nice to God. You loved God. You were following after God. You were pursuing God. And then all of a sudden, something happens, right? It's like, I'm pursuing God, and then you're like, oh. And then you, whatever you can say legitimate or, or illegitimate, you start pursuing and thinking about other things. And then slowly but surely, what happens? You start becoming vain yourself, right? You, become, you start becoming what you're pursuing, and guess what? You begin to totally, completely forget God in any meaningful way, right? And it's, it happens in two groups of people. Look, look what it says in verse 6. Neither said they. Who is the they? That's the people. Where is the Lord that brought us out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death? through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. They stopped asking about where is the God who did all of this for them, meaning they not only forgot God, what else did they forget? All the things that he had done for them. They forget God, they forget his actions towards them. All right? Then uh, verse 7, And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof, and the goodness thereof, but when you entered, you defiled my land and made my uh, heritage an abomination. Now, verse 7 immediately, yes, God continues to remind them of what they've done, but they have stopped asking where that God is. And they so forgot God that when they came into the land, how does the King James put it? Verse 7. That's right there. Yes, but after you entered, you defiled my land and you made my inheritance detestable. You made it despised. You came into the land and look what you did because they had forgotten him. They've so for just look at the look at the, the evolution here. Hey, I remember guys when you were nice to me. I remember, guys, when you loved me. Hey, guys, I remember when you followed after me. Hey, guys, I remember all of this stuff. But guess what you started doing? Obviously, you found some fault in me. You thought you did because you stopped following me. You started going after vanity. And then you stopped even asking where I was. You, forget, you stopped even worrying about where I was. You forgot all that I had done for you. And you forgot me so bad that when you finally got the thing that I promised you, you did what with it? It's right there in verse 7. Yeah, you entered, you defiled the land. Remember, now that's, that's fascinating because they were to drive out the people who were supposedly defiling the land and they drove out that which defiled the land and they became the things that defiled it themselves. Now, I, this is very important to remember because we live in a culture where this is very important. We, we, I don't like to... Oh, take a sidetrack, but it's very applicable here, right? Whenever God's people, quote-unquote, drive out the supposed pagan who are defiling the land, the people we drive out, we will replace them with our own defilement. Christians want to run around the country going, we're going to do this, we're going to get rid of this. You will become the defilement. To drive out defilement only replaces that defilement with our defilement. Does everybody understand that? Why? Because we're just as sinful. All right, that, I don't know why Christians always seem to think that if we, we'll drive all of them out. Well, um, I don't know, have you seen 2,000 years of church history? Is it, is it made up of a lot of defiled things? 
Yes, now, the, the reason Christians always feel like that we're not going to do that is because what do we always say when someone goes and defiles something? Well, they're not saved. Remember, Christians, that's our ace up the sleeve, right? Right? Oh, look at how many children were sexually abused by the Catholic Church. We don't even acknowledge that, right? Well, like, we've got to protect the children. Well, if you want to protect the children, you may want to keep them all out of a Catholic Church. Oh, but we don't say that, right? No, we're going to go after something lost people. We're not going to talk about the Catholic Church, right? So, because we just say, well, they're not Christian. And then when sexual abuse happens in the Southern Baptists, well, we're like, they're not. We, our go-to answer is always like, not Christians. Not. That, that always makes us feel better, right? Because then we don't have to answer for anything. But God's people defile. Because God's people are sinners. And, and every time Israel, dri- they could drive out everyone. And then who became the defilement of the land? They themselves. Christians, you can drive out Everything from society you don't like. You can drive it all out. You can get Republicans from one part of the country to the other part of the country. You can get rid of the, the pride flag. You can, you can make Target go out of business. Get rid of everything. And you're going to be just as defiled. I know that's not popular preaching, but it's just the reality because we are Sinners. Unless you believe in the eradication of the old nature. And anyone who believes in the eradication of the old nature, forget them being a Christian or not being a Christian. They're mentally ill. They need help because they're denying reality. All right? Okay, so that was popular. Okay, now let's continue. All right? All right? Okay. Oh, trust me. There's nothing more that I would wish that when you become a Christian... Dun, dun, da, da, I no longer sin. I no longer desire it. Think about it. I wish I no longer pursued vain things. I wish I no longer became vain. I wish I would never forget God. But the issue here in Jeremiah is the same issue every Christian faces. There's times in our Christian life where we are like a young kid saying, I want to be nice to God. And then we're like a a new bride saying, oh, I love you, Lord. And then we want to follow after God. And then we want to be his first fruits and we want to be holy. And And then God's like, "Uh, what did I do wrong? Because we're like, we're off somewhere else. We're chasing something else. And then we become like the thing we chase. And then all of a sudden we're like, we stop asking where God is in any meaningful way. So the people, so we see the people forget God in verses uh, 6 through 7, right? Right, because he says, "I brought you into a plentiful country, then you became uh, the abomination, right? Or you uh, defiled my land, and my heritage becomes an abomination." And then look at verse eight. Who said a second group of people to forget God? The priest said, "Not where is the Lord that they and they and they that handled the law knew me not? The pastors also transgressed against me." And the prophets prophesied by Biel. Now he named three different groups of spiritual leaders. What are the three groups of spiritual leaders? Priest, pastors, and prophets. If we look up the word pastor there, let me see. I don't know if all translations use the word pastor there. Um, The experts in the law. The experts in the law is how uh, one translation puts it. If we look up the word pastor there, just so that we know it's probably not, it's probably not the image that you're thinking, right? Um, if we go to the verse, if we go to the verse, I don't want to get sidetracked on this, but shepherd, okay, I, th- I thought it was going to be shepherd, all right, uh, yeah, it's uh, to, to pasture, to tend pasture, shepherd, it's a ruler, it's a teacher, it's a lot of different things there, right? Uh, it's, it's a whole lot of things there that can, that can come into play. So the, the bottom line is, we can break them down into three, we can break them down into three areas. We have the priest, we'll call them the shepherds, the spiritual shepherds, and we'll call them the prophets. All three have forgotten God. And in, watch, in which way have each one forgotten God? How did the priest forget God? It's right there. It's open book. 
How did the priests forget God? It's right there. Okay, they stop asking where God is. In other words, they, so what, how can we understand that? That's where the religious leader becomes more about the job instead of about God. And it's easy to do that, right? You got to keep producing the sermons. You got to keep producing the sermons. You got to keep teaching. You got to keep teaching. You got to deal with this. This person's upset about this. Oh, wait, how many people are coming to church? How can we get more people? If we don't get more people, we're not going to have the money. We're going to pay. Like it just becomes a bit. It becomes, I mean, you can't. The church members can always act sanctimonious and like, I don't know why they would do that. Well, try it, right? It, it becomes a job. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Trying to figure out, if I do it this way, then the person's like, you, you, were, you got all up in my business and you would not leave. And then you say, I'm going to do it this way. Where were you? You were nowhere to be found. Like, no matter what you do, you're not going to be happy. You try like, okay, we got to get more people to church. All you worry about are numbers, and all you care about is money. Okay, we won't worry about numbers. Oh, oh, so you're, you're trash because your church is not growing. No matter what you do, you know, you preach a sermon. You preach too long. You preach this way. Oh, just never mind, you know. You know, you preach the wrong way. You pre- it's just, and it just becomes a business. And so guess what? You, 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 you not only do you not say, what was, what was the question the priest didn't ask? Where's the Lord? Not only do you say, where is the Lord? You're just like, I don't even know if God is involved in the entire process. Like, I hate to say it. Sometimes you look at church and you're like, I don't know if God is even involved in any of this. Because it's so fleshly. It's so, it's so human. Right? And when you pull back the curtain sometimes to what's going on in churches, you'll be absolutely just like, what has happened? What has happened? Like, what? I don't even know what, what, you know, what is going on. But, okay, right. So yeah, ignore the man behind the curtain because behind the curtain it's just like, it's just so human and fleshly. But they've completely forgotten God. Like, they're not even asking where God is. Okay, that's the priest. The next group, the pastors or the shepherds, what have they done? Okay? They've transgressed against me. In other words, the, the law that they're supposed to be teaching, they're now violating. Okay? And then lastly, the prophets. They, the prophets are now prophesying uh, by a false god. And then what does it say? Oh, we're right back to that. They're walking after that which is of no profit. That which is vain that which is empty they are walking out so everyone has forgotten god the people and the religious leaders now but please note this is very 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 important this is i i want if you don't get anything from this i want you to not forget this okay listen the people at one point was nice to god loved him followed him, was pursuing holiness, was his first fruits, and was protected by him. Something so dramatically changed that God asked them, what did I do wrong? Because I've done something, or he's at, depending on how we understand the question, because you people started doing what? Go back to like verse 4, I think, or verse 5, where the question is. That you have gone far from me and have walked after vanity and become vain. The people have now, they've, they, they've walked away from God because they're following other things and they become worthless themselves. So then God then does what? Then he, met, he, sa- he says the whole reason this has happened is because you've forgotten me. How have you forgotten me? The people have. Where is the Lord? They've, they're no longer asking where God is. They've forgotten what he has done for them. Then the priest and the prophets and the pastors, they've all forgotten God. They've gotten to so far that they're not only transgressing to God, they're not even asking, where is the Lord? They're walking after things that do not profit. Now, here's the thing. You've got to remember this. You would think, now listen to me, you would think in theory then that they would no longer even claim to be what? Followers of God. You would think that they would have just have abandoned what? Everything about God. But they didn't abandon everything about God. In many cases, they would bring in the idols and use the idols in order to supposedly be worshiping God. 
I want to make sure you realize that you can literally, listen, walk, be far from God. Listen, you can literally be far from God, walking after vain things, become completely worthless, and completely forget God, and still be coming to church every Sunday. Still be claiming a, to be a Christian. Because in our minds, we would think people like that would be doing what? We just have just walked away from it. But it doesn't, it's not always the case. Just sometimes it manifests itself that way. Yes, sometimes it does manifest itself that way. But sometimes we just keep doing what? Going through the motions. Going through the motions. You're like, I think you forgot about God. Oh, I, I still believe in God. I still, I still love God. Okay, I, I still go to church sometimes. Now, typically, it will manifest itself in church attendance. It will manifest itself in some way, shape, or form. But I'm just wanting you to see, these people would have probably still told you what? We're following God. We're God's children. Right? We're still doing the right thing. They probably may have even went after and punished other people for doing the wrong thing. Pharisees did that. They were far from God, but you, they would have never told you that, right? True? Okay, now. Oh, okay, we're going to have to. We'll, we'll try to at least end in this next section if we can, all right? I don't know if we can, all right? At least we can get there, all right? So the forgetting goes from verse 6 to 8. You see all of the forgetting, right? The question was verse 4 and 5, right? The question was in verse 4 and 5, remember? Then the forgetting is verse 6, 7, and 8, right? Everyone, who, two different groups of people forgot God, the people and the spiritual leaders. They had all forgotten God. And now what starts in verse 9? 9 to 13, now, some Bibles stop it in verse 12. I'm going to possibly put it in verse 13. What do we call this section? Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. Now, you've got to be very careful how we understand this word because some would understand plead in what way? Please, I'm going to plead with you. But I don't know if that's the meaning of the word. Look up the meaning of the word plead really quick. Look up the meaning of the word plead. <clears throat> to strive, to contend. That's not begging. To debate, chide. Strive, contend. That's not the way pleading should be. Don't think, when you see the word plead there, don't understand it that way. Let me read from another translation just so that you can see how this understood. Are you ready? Therefore, I will bring a case against you. What God is about to do is do what? He's in a sense gonna, he's gonna lay out his case. I, I, I call this the contention. God is gonna give, he's gonna contend with the people. You could call this God's case against the people. However, you want to verbalize it or write it down. So let's just to get us back caught up here on this chapter. Everybody ready for, ready for this? Just breaking the chapter down in a simple way. Chapter 2, verse 1 is God's word. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying. Just in the book of Jeremiah, the phrase, saith the Lord, is used 157 times. This emphasizes over and over and over that Jeremiah is a message from God, right? Verse uh, uh, 2, what do we have? Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem. We have the recipients. Now, we know the recipients change or added to a little bit later, but we have the recipients, all right? Then verses 2 through 3, what do we have? What God remembers. What does he remember about Judah, what does he remember about the Jerusalem? He remembers their kindness, their love, their following, their holiness, their first fruits, and his protection of them. And he reminds, he says what he remembers to remind them of their past relationship with him. Yes? 
And then what happens in verse 4 and 5? God asks a question. And he asks the question for what reason? Because something has changed. And he's like, hey, remember how it was this way? What iniquity did you find in me? And we know, we know there's possibly three different ways he asked that question or how we interpret the question, but there is the question. Then what do we have in verses 6 through 8? What do we have 6 through 8? We've just spent almost an hour covering it. They're forgetting. This is the forgetting. They forgot God. Which two groups forget? The people and the spiritual leaders. They forget God. All right? Then what happens in verses 9 through 13? God's case against the people. You could call his contention. He's going to contend with them. However you want to word it. Whatever makes you feel better. All right? Here we go. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children's will I plead. For pass over the isles of Chittim and see, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. He sends them somewhere, right? Where does he send them? To two different places. If you look up those places... I'll just use like one study Bible. That's what verse? Verse 10. Okay, here is God's courtroom accusation. Okay, now he's going to, he tells them uh, they have, well, okay. Looking from Cyprus, I'll just skip some of this because they do a lot of interpreting here. Looking from Cyprus to Kedar in the desert east of Transjordan, God says, uh, and nowhere will you find another nation making such a foolish decision. He tells them, go far away and look. Go and see. Like, here's God's challenge to them. He's bringing his case. He's like, hey, go over there and look at it. And he names Chittim and Kadar, right? Go over there. Now, you can figure out where they are on a map, but he's sending them a, a distance away, right? Okay? Now, what does he want them to go see? Yes, hath a nation changed their gods, which yet are no gods. What's what's he wants them to do? Go look and see if other nations have done what? Change their God to a no God. Now, I know in a roundabout way, you're like, well, wait a minute. All those nations don't have the right God, so it really is no God. So in that sense, it seems a foolish thing to say. But what is he, what is he, what's the point he's trying to make? That they stayed true to their gods. They stayed true to their gods. But not you guys have not only not stayed true to your gods, you've done what? You've exchanged your God for no God. Right. No one in their right mind would do that. That's the, that's the thing. So in a sense, his contention, his case against them really is threefold, right? Here is, their, their, here is his contention with them. You ready? His contention with them is, number one, they've exchanged. There was an exchange that took place. They've exchanged their God with no God. Or you can say it put this way. My people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. They've exchanged God to that which is vain, meaningless, and empty. They've ex- they made an exchange. Here, it, it's, there used to be what? We were nice to God. We loved God. All, now they've exchanged God for that which does not profit. Everybody see that? Yeah. Look at verse 12. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. He's calling everyone to be astounded by this. Look at how crazy this is. Hey, all of the heavens, look at how ridiculous this is. My people have basically said, hey, we have a God. And their God was actually involved in their life doing something. And now they have forsaken that for that which does not profit, that which is vain. Right? What's the second thing? 
For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. So his contention is number one, they've exchanged glory for that which is not profitable. Number two, they have forsaken me for the, uh, the fountains of living waters. So they have, just let's go, just, just they have forsaken me. We'll break it down that way. They have forsaken him. So his contention is threefold. Number one, what have they done? They've exchanged glory for that which has no profit. Number two, they have forsaken, right? And then number three, that can hold no water. They have exchanged, they have forsaken, and they've dug it, dug new cisterns, or dug new, basically, like a well. They've dug a new thing that can't hold any water. They've forsaken what? The fountain, what does he say? In the text, open book? No, before that. They've forsaken the fountain of living water. They've forsaken an actual fountain to dig a new cistern, a new like a new well that is not going to hold anything. It's always going to be just one big empty hole in the ground. And they dug it. They put forth the effort. They put forth the time. They put forth the focus, which is once again a very good word picture to describe the whole problem. They have pursued what? That which is vain and empty. And what are they going to be left with? A big hole in the ground that's never going to hold any water. And then we stop right there because then verse 14, he starts with all of these questions again and and we won't go into that. So here is what I want us to do this morning. Very simple, very straightforward. All right. I'm going to put the first hour together with the second hour, even though I try to keep them separate, but I'm going to try to do this. All right? Here we go. Everybody thinking caps on? All right? Well, just real quick and we'll be done. I need every person to think about the Christian life, and I want you to ask yourself, are there phases in the Christian life? And break your life down into phases. Like, remember your Christian life and just label the phases. Everyone's phases are going to be different, right? Especially, we talked about it in the first hour. If you were saved in a Christian home with Christian parents, I don't know what that phase is. I don't even understand that. That's some wacky stuff. I don't get it, right? I don't get, I don't, because I don't know what that is. I call that a confused something. Because, Because you don't know if the kid loves God, because at that point they love their parents and they're going to do whatever the parents say, so... That's just a weird, I don't know what phase that is. I think it's a very uncertain phase, all right? So I, I can't explain that phase. But for those of us who become saved, who are not raised in a Christian home and become saved later in life, that initial phase, we know what that initial phase is. That's one of passion and zeal and excitement. And we want to be nice to God. And we love God like a new bride. And we're, pursu- and we're following after God. It's a time of passion, a lot of ignorance, but a lot of zeal. A lot of ignorance, but a lot of zeal. Sometimes we do bad things out of that zeal because we are so ignorant. And we hurt a lot of people, destroy relationships, call people names. We sometimes do some really messed up stuff during that period of time. But there's a lot of zeal. So whatever you want to call that phase. And then we start transitioning into kind of a second phase where there's a lot of learning. A lot of learning can be happening. That's a good phase, right? But a lot of learning can lead to a lot of pride and a lot of arrogance, right? And I think at some point, there's almost always in everyone's Christian life, and this is, and, and they, they don't all, these phases don't always play out clearly, but there's almost a phase where now the newness, the new car smell is gone. Right? You've been a Christian a while. You've seen a lot of good things, and you've seen a lot of bad things. And you become frustrated, irritated, and all of a sudden you start pursuing that which is profitable not profitable, that which is vain. And in some ways we become vain and almost we kind of almost maybe go through a stage where we, there's a forgetting of God or it's a constant struggle. We begin to take God for, we're not asking where is God. We're more worried about if God knows where I am. It's not like God, where, where are you? We're saying where are you in relation to 
Do you know where I am? Right? Really, the question is, God, do you know where I am? We're not saying, God, I, I want to know where you are so I can come to you. I want you to know where I am so you can come to me. Right? There's a big difference in those questions, right? So, and then we, we, we go through these phases. But so, as I want you to consider the phases of the Christian life and just figure out where are you now? Are you still being nice to God and loving God and following after God? Or have you, that stage has changed. And then I want you to just really consider in what ways are you pursuing that which is vain? That which is empty. And then, so, so I want you to consider the phases. I want you to consider what it means to pursue that which is vain. And then lastly, it's very simple. Does God have that same, those same three contentions with you as he had with them? And what are those three contentions? Exchange glory for that which is vain. Forsaken God. And number three, digging out a cistern that holds no water. Right. Well, you, there you're, you're, you're yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty empty, vain thing to be digging a hole that's not going to do anything. Why are you digging that hole? Because it's going to be wonderful. It's not going to do anything. Oh, but, it's, but that's your pursuit. You're pursuing that which is. To, look, to, to dig a cistern that can't hold water would seem like a pretty foolish endeavor considering the word picture there, right? You just forsook a fountain of living water. Like, here's a fountain. What are you doing? I'm leaving the fountain. What do you got? I'm going to go dig a cistern here so I can get... There's a living... I'm digging a hole! Leave me alone! Okay, and you dig the hole, and it's not going to hold any water. I don't care! It, it's, it's almost humorous. It's almost humorous, but it's the way that it plays itself out. All right. Okay, we have to stop because my computer is telling me the battery is low. So I have talked so long that I've worn out the battery of my laptop. All right, let's, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. We thank you for the book of Jeremiah, and I pray that we would consider these principles and concepts carefully. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...